0: Our text is Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 12, and then we will do our best to get through as much of it as we can this morning. <clears throat> uh, the, in, in our intro this morning, Aaron read the verses preceding this, and we pick up in Ephesians 1 and verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin? Father, we thank you for the precious bounty that is your word. Lord, I feel so inadequate to even open your word, much less preach it. And yet your word tells me that's a good thing. Because the adequacy is not in ourselves, it is fully in Christ. So Lord, help us see our completeness and our adequacy not in ourselves, in any of us here this morning, but let us behold it in Christ our Lord of whom we sing, of whom we cherish, of whom we love, who binds our relationships to one another, who binds our marriages, who binds together our parenting, who binds together our heart for the lost. Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted today again through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There was a recent discovery in Scotland. There was a biographer or uh, not a biographer but a historian who was visiting one of these stately homes in the countryside of of Scotland and he was doing this for a BBC series, TV series called Britain's Lost Masterpieces. And he was there at the stately home to examine uh, various masterpieces hanging on the walls. But as he was walking through this magnificent home with its high vaulted ceilings, he was struck by a piece that was hanging kind of uh, in, in the shadows over a door. It was not one of the pieces that he was there to behold. It was just one that was hanging over a door in the shadows, not really being paid attention to. And he said it was very dirty under old varnish, which over time goes yellow. And it was almost almost uh, missed by him. He says, I go around uh, houses like this with binoculars and torches. He doesn't mean fiery torches, but that's their way of saying flashlights. And, and if I hadn't done this, he said, I probably would have walked right past it. And so he's walking under this door and he shines his light up on it. He looks at it through his binoculars. It must've been a really high ceiling. And he looks at this master this this what would become a masterpiece, but at first what he saw was a painting that had up until that time been valued at twenty six dollars. Uh, and in under a new evaluation, and after this gentleman historian looked at this masterpiece, its value increased, its worth a million fold. Originally, it had been attributed to a minor Renaissance artist, and you may not know that, but you can get minor Renaissance artists' paintings, evidently, for $26. And it was attributed originally to De Molay, but experts now believe it's actually a Madonna by the Renaissance master, Raphael. In today's market, its value is around $26 million dollars. It was after closer examination that the value and the work appreciated for what it is. Now, what's interesting about that is that nothing in the nature of the painting changed. It had always been hanging there. It had always been seen. Who, Who knows how many people on a tour of the stately home had walked under that same door, had might have even seen it before and appreciated it at some level. It was only, if we can imagine, how many times somebody had walked past And how many times did somebody had walked under this painting, not realizing how valuable it was, but it was after closer examination that the value and work was appreciated for what it is. And we imagine how many times someone walked past this painting not realizing what was really there, though they could see with their own eyes what was really there, they didn't really understand what was there that's a silly illustration, and that's a true story. But if we can just imagine this, that this is what Paul is doing for us in Ephesians 1. He is that writer, he is that historian who's shining a torch up on this masterpiece. And we walk past these truths on a regular basis. If you're a part of this church, and you should be, by the way, if I lived in Kansas City, this is where I would be, As you walk past these truths on a regular basis, a daily basis, if you're a part of the larger fellowship of this church, you're hearing these things in homes, you're seeing these in fellowship groups and Sunday schools and and, in homes and all of these things, you walk past these truths on a regular basis, we sing about the blood of Christ, we exalt and sing about the forgiveness of sins, the amazing grace of God, yet how often we just glide past these wonderful truths, not appreciating the value of what they really are. We note in our text this morning, this is just before our, our passage, the main idea of Ephesians 1 is in verse 3. I didn't read this verse, but the main idea is there. And it's this, by the way, I'm going to be tempted to say way too much here. When I preached this sermon originally, it was three sermons. We're going to try to get it into one. If you want to stick around later, we'll, we'll, or I'll just give you my notes. But I've been preaching through Ephesians in my church, and. These are truths that we are comfortable with here, uh, but we should not become too comfortable and so so familiar that we miss what Paul is saying. And and here's the main idea of Ephesians chapter one. It's it's right there in verse three. The almighty God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And Paul is shining a light on this in chapter one. He's not telling us to do anything. He's not telling us to go somewhere. He's just telling us, sit down, be quiet and listen. Listen. Listen to what God has done for you, sinner. Listen to how God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, not some, every spiritual blessing that you need. And he's done this in a Trinitarian pattern. And if you are to keep reading, and I'll encourage you to do that, keep reading in Ephesians, you're gonna see this Trinitarian pattern appear again and again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the pattern of of chapter one. And that sets the tone for everything in the rest of this book. It's the main idea. God's blessed you. God's blessed you. This is not I sneeze and some stranger says bless you in some kind of weird, you know, uh, superstitious way. This is God has bestowed on you his blessing, his promise, his love, his care, his concern, his covenant blessing. Binding and cords around your heart, and he has blessed you in every conceivable way in the heavenlies and even given you a foretaste of this while you walk this fallen earth. He's blessed you. And he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then beginning in verse 4, all the way through verse 14. Verse 4 through verse 14 is just one long sentence for Paul. He likes long sentences, especially in Ephesians and Colossians. And here, it's just one long sentence 202 words in the, in the Greek. Just one long sentence. Paul, Paul can't stop. He's just over, it's like he's a kid excited talking about some places that he's going or, or something that happened to him, something special happened at school today and he comes home and he just doesn't take a breath and he just keeps going. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's excited, he's ready to encourage the church. And there's this long sentence that just describes what this entails. And if we knew how great the gift would be and is, we would stop And just linger for a while and just look at this masterpiece that we do not appreciate as if it's hanging on a wall in Rome or in a Scotland stately home. We we appreciate this because it has come home and it is personal to us. Paul writes this, that we would enjoy, that we would take in, that we would grab others and lead them to this spectacle so that, we, so that they too could enjoy what we so wonderfully enjoy every Sunday and every day of our Christian lives. Ephesians 1 is the Apostle Paul leading us to stop right in front of the cross and linger for a little while and linger over and just meditate on and think and rejoice in the redemptive work of Christ. And this is not so that we will just stay there. It's so that that will be with us as he gets to places like chapter 5, which can be quite difficult. And he begins to talk about our marriages. And he begins to talk about our work in chapter 6. And, and kids. He talks about how we are to, uh, uh, to obey our parents. It's so wonderful that the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, does not start with chapter 5, because that would, if we may just say it this way, might turn a lot of people off. He doesn't begin there with all the imperatives and saying, wives, here, here's how you are to understand your relationship with your husband. Husbands, here's how you understand your relationship with your wives. Kids, coworkers, masters and slaves and all of these things. He begins where we should always begin and that's at the cross to behold the triune work of God the Father who has sent his son to redeem us and who has, verses 13 and 14, sealed us by his spirit. We sing those wonderful truths this morning. If we understand this, and Paul wants us to understand this, he leads us right here to linger for a while. Ephesians 1 is is not meant to be a quick drive-by, but it is a a patient stroll through the garden of God's work for us. This is not a a, a run-through. You know, this is not the 10th trip to Disneyland where we're just running through the park and we're just going right to the rides that we really like. We often do that with the Bible, right? We just, here's the portions I like. He, he's saying, no, let's just stop and let's just take note of some things. And Paul's such a wonderful tour guide for us in this. Another way to think about this, Rick mentioned Auburn, uh, which is worthy of mentioning in this wonderful place, House of Worship. Somebody got that. It's like watching a football game. And there's a couple of ways to watch a football game. But when I watch my Auburn Tigers, it is my, my preference is not actually in Jordan-Hare Stadium. It's actually in my home, sitting in my chair with a control so that I, as, as a former football player, can go back and watch things in slow motion. I want to see how the line developed. I want to see how, how seams were opened up and holes developed and all of those things. And I want to see how the back's read and the quarterback's read. I want to see that in slow motion. And I want to see the details. I like like the details of those things. And you could probably apply that to a lot of things in your own life. This is not just watching it without replay. This is a slow-mo look at this. And Paul is slowing down the tape for us so that we would rejoice and see and linger for a while. We sing about that as well, don't we? In one of the old hymns, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Paul here is tuning our hearts to recognize the nuances and the greatness of our salvation so that we will truly understand and be encouraged by our new identity in Christ. And that's foundational to everything here. So chapter 1, if you keep reading in Ephesians, and again, I encourage you to do that. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about this is who you are in Christ. Here's your new identity. That's why chapter 1 comes before chapter 5. Not just mathematically, but in, in order of importance, You need to understand who you are in Christ so then you will understand what God has done for you, chapter 2, in rescuing you from your sins. You will understand all that God has done to bring the church together, chapter 3 and chapter 4, and how he's given it leadership, how he's knit the church in a special way, and then how that impacts everything, including our relationships, chapter 5, and our living in this world that is darkened by sin, chapter 6. You need to understand who you are in Christ. And so that's where Paul begins here. And so in verses 7 through 12, it is about the work that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And so we begin by asking this question What has the cross accomplished for us? What has Jesus' death accomplished for us? And here we take notice and we see redemption accomplished and applied accomplished really is chapter 1 and applied is everything else after this and paul as our tour guide first draws our attention to this very detail number 1 he removes sin that's a very important answer to the question what has redemption done for us and what has the cross done for it is he removes sin look back at verse 7 again in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness Of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If you look closely at verse 7, you you find the word there redemption. Redemption. This is a a key teaching found in this section. At its most basic level, the, the word redemption means to release or to deliver. If you go to the store with a coupon in your hand for a free item uh, and, and some, or something discounted, it says you must present this coupon in order to redeem this item. Charlie had to redeem his visit to the chocolate factory with a golden ticket, right? One of my favorite books. Part of the background for this comes, in the biblical sense, comes from the realm of warfare, actually. And when a military leader would be victorious in battle in the ancient times, and even in some places still today, he might take prisoners, and they become his slaves. They become his property. For example, we think of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He besieged Jerusalem, and he took slaves, some of the young men of Israel, Daniel and his buddies. The military leader could then use his captives as a bargaining chip. And they, would, they could go free, but some would, someone somewhere would have to pay for their release. And this was the basic idea of redemption. They are held captive, they are slaves, and they are slaves to another god or slaves to another leader or slaves to someone else. And in order for them to be released, someone would have to come along and pay for their release and redeem them. Slaves, at the time of Paul's writing, could actually go free if someone was willing to pay the price of their redemption. They could also save up and buy their own freedom, through though that was quite rare. And so you can see there's a broad application to this word redemption in ancient times and even in modern times, but as you can also see if you're reading between the lines, that not all those understandings actually translate to what's going on here. Because here's the problem. In no way could we possibly, as a slave in ancient Rome, save up enough works to purchase our own redemption because the wages of sin is what? It's death. Uh, We we can't die for ourselves and somehow be released. That's the self-defeating, isn't it? The Old Testament foundation is really the foundation for what Paul is saying here. That's the imagery that he's drawing on, not just the ancient practices. So, for example, the imagery in Exodus 6, verse 6, you don't need to turn there, where Israel is in bondage to Pharaoh and the Lord says through Moses, he says, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you, there's our word, with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So deliverance is associated with God the Lord himself redeeming a people for himself. And Paul loves this word. He uses it seven times across his epistles. It's an important word Jesus uses a form of this word when he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which is the thematic verse of the entire Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know the word. Same word, ransom, redemption here. Paul says in verse 7, in him we have. In him we have. That's good news. The redemption believers have with Christ is a present possession. You have this, not might have this. This is what God has bestowed on you. Paul says in Romans 3, 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He speaks of this as a certainty, as a present reality to all who know him in Christ. But what is the payment price? Charlie had the golden ticket. Some of us have coupons as we go to the store. What's the payment price that is demanded? What is the golden ticket that must be paid? Paul says here in verse seven that our redemption was secured. How? Through his blood. What does this mean? Now, first and second century pagans Romans, they didn't understand or grasp, nor could they, all this talk about blood among Christians. In fact, uh, this, this, this talk about blood and sacrifice, they actually used that to spread rumors about, about Christians. In, in some cases, they, they accused them of, of eating their children and this was a the way they used to, to persecute. In fact, some of that is still around with us today. I mentioned some of us going to Samara, Russia. There was a, a, a young Russian Orthodox man who came to Christ and believed in Christ by faith and repented of his sins. And for the first time, he went into the, the church there in Samara, the central church. And when he walked in, someone, he said to the person that was with him who led him to Christ, he said, and he was pointing to the pulpit with the big table in front of it. We've, we've been there and we've taught from that pulpit. And he says, is, is that where the babies are sacrificed? And, now, why did he say that? This is a, a man who had just come to Christ because his Russian Orthodox leaders told him that the Baptist church there in Central samar that's what they do. They sacrifice children. It was a rumor. Those rumors have been with Christians for a long time because they talk about this thing about the blood of Christ. What does Paul mean here? We are redeemed through his blood. Are we just are we some gory, uh, just ridiculous people that love to talk about blood and gore? His blood, that, that phrase there, his blood, is a summary word that refers to Jesus' death and all that it entails. He's not saying that there was some mystical or magical significance to the blood of Christ, as if Jesus could just prick his finger and there was, it was like some potion from a, a Disney movie that would somehow cleanse or, or, or heal people and those kind of things. He's, he's signifying here all that his death entailed, and his death was a death through blood. This was the price of redemption. It means that someone had to die. Not just, Jesus didn't just bleed for us, he died for us. And in his, in his death, he bled for us. It indicates the means by which the redemption is secured. It refers to the sacrificial death of Jesus. Because the wages of sin is death and judgment, and Christ willingly gave himself in our place as a substitute and became for us what we could not become for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he made him who knew no sin. He was sinless to be sin, to be treated as a sinner on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, that we might be restored and made right with God. He did this through the death of Christ. This is the doctrine of what I prefer to call when I teach seminary students and in our churches, not uh, by some of its other lingo. I like to call this actual atonement. Actual atonement. Because what is going on here is an actual atonement. Uh, This is not a potential atonement. This is not a we hope to be atoned for. This is an actual atonement in actual reality, in time, space, and history that was really procured for God's people. It is a grave mistake to speak of the death of Christ apart from what His death actually accomplished. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross people were actually redeemed. Have you ever thought about that? He's not dying for potential sinners. He's dying for real sinners, and He really dies for them. He actually redeems them. God's wrath was actually turned away from them and from us. By faith, we die to sin so that we would no longer live under the curse of sin. So the cross is not some vague generality describing something that Jesus did only to make salvation possible as if he's just providing an alternative to the matrix in which we all live, this matrix of sin and said, you know, if you ever get around to it, here's another possibility for you. He actually redeems a people and he calls them his sons and daughters and they are his sheep and they belong to him and no one can jump out of, their ha- out of his hand and no one can be snatched out of his hand. The cross did not make salvation merely possible for the whole world. He actually secured the salvation of all who were given to him by the Father before the foundation of the world. Paul says that in the opening verses of this chapter. And so Paul says here, we have redemption through his blood. That is really good news to us. Why? Because if this is common to man, and it is, some of you this morning, or all of us, or most of us, are feeling the sting of our own sin even as believers. And the good news is that God holds you fast by the sacrificial death of Christ and his merits and his worth and his value and not ours. Spurgeon said it this way. By the way, I always wanted to preach from Spurgeon's pulpit. I think this is the closest I'll ever get. We say, Spurgeon said, we say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved, Spurgeon said. Paul shows us here in verse 7 that the work of the cross is not some generalized promise, but this. in this context we see that all who are chosen by and before the foundation of the world by God are the ones who have been redeemed from their sins. They are the ones who have right now the forgiveness of their trespasses. You, believer who are trusting in Christ, you, believer who are looking to Christ, you do have the forgiveness of your sins. Our beloved J.I. Packer, he says, our theological currency has actually been debased when we lose sight of this. Our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption that does less than redeem and of Christ as a savior who does less than save and of God's love as a weak affection that cannot keep anyone from help without help and of faith as the human help that God needs for this purpose. Our redemption is a work of Christ alone for us that we receive by faith. The good news for us this morning is that our eternal security is rooted not in a decision that we have made, but then in a work that, in a work that he has accomplished. That's really good news for us this morning. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You need to know this, knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, everyone else before you was just like this. But how were we redeemed, Peter, verse 19, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Paul says this to church leaders as well in Acts chapter 20. The only time in the New Testament where we have a scene where Paul is actually face-to-face with the elders of another church. And he looks to those Ephesian elders whom Paul is writing to here in the church in Acts 20, verse 28, and he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, what? Purchased with his own blood. So Paul even picks up on this as he's instilling and encouraging the leadership of this church in Ephesus not to look to themselves, but to point to Christ, and it's Christ who has bled and died for the church. Not you men, not us. So care for what Christ has purchased. And I know what you're thinking. He's only in verse 7. He's not going to get through all of this. And you're probably right. But we probably don't need to. We're stopped. We're going to stop and linger for a while. He redeemed us by his blood, becoming a curse for sin. He sacrificed himself in love as a husband toward his bride. That's the only way you will make sense of chapter 5 when you get to the household codes. He actually purchased the church with his own blood. Now, why is this so important? As sinners, we need both. Here's a little theological lesson here in the midst of this. We need both justification and redemption. You need both. These are two important words. There are other important words, but these are two really foundational, important words. We need justification and redemption. We are guilty because of sin, so we need Justification. We need to be declared righteous before a holy God. But we also need more than that. And, and not to say that that's insignificant, but God has done more than just justify us. Here's what He's done. He's also redeemed us. Because we are held in bondage to our sin, we also need redemption. So we need to not only be declared righteous, we need to be declared and set free. And it's redemption that sets us free. We need to be released. He doesn't say... You are declared righteous. Now you need to go back to jail and finish out your sentence. That happens, right? Uh, You're guilty, but you're going to continue to serve your time. We recognize. The court recognizes that you're guilty. You're responsible for your sin, but you're now declared right, but you need to go back and finish out your time. That's not what he says. We're actually declared righteous, not on our own merits, but by the merits of Christ, and then we are released, redeemed. Through his blood, he brought about our acquittal, which is justification, and he also sets believers free, redemption. We can see both of these working together in places like Romans three twenty four. Paul says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So he brings both of those concepts together. What has this secured for us? Look at verse 7 again. Forgiveness of trespasses and sins. The word here literally refers to something offensive. The word forgiveness is in opposition to the word apposition, to the word redemption. In other words, he has redeemed us by forgiving us. The second idea explains the first. The word forgiveness refers to covering over and sending away a debt and is therefore canceled. The background idea to this is the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 the idea of sending it away, and the Lord has sent away our sins through the cross. The cross of Christ has canceled our debt and the penalty of our sin. Paul is referring to the act of transgressing the will and law of God by some false step or failure that is not just some misdeed, but it is ours by nature. This is not just we are sinners because of what we do. This is who we are by nature. It's not that what we have done, we can all think of something in our life, maybe even last night that we did that is an offense to God, but that's not how God looks at it. He looks at not just the things that we do, he looks at us. We are an offense to God until Christ and his atonement and his life is applied to us and God sees us and he accepts us because of what Christ has done for us. How serious is the state of our sin and our need for forgiveness? In chapter two, we'll get to this next week. In chapter two, we are rendered dead by our sins. It's pretty serious. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, our sin led us to a conformity with this world and its evil ruler. And Paul says there that whether we realize it or not, we were aligned with Satan himself. Chapter 2, verse 3, our sins result in an in an an enslavement in which we can only indulge our pleasures for more and our pleas for more sin. Also in chapter 2, verse 3, our sin meant that our nature was so corrupted. And here's probably the most serious thing. Our sin nature was so corrupted that we, are children, deserving the full wrath of God. If that doesn't make you tremble apart from Christ, then you're not looking at the masterpiece enough because this is serious. This is why Paul uses the word offenses or transgressions here in chapter 1, verse 7. When Jesus, on that Thursday night before the cross, and he's in that upper room sharing the first Lord's table with his disciples, and he broke bread, and he transforms the Passover meal into a meal to Mark his soon work on the cross. He says in Matthew 26, verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Divine forgiveness is essential to the restoration of our relationship with the Father. He says this is according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. Paul points us to God's grace as the reason. Not, I know some of you will find this hard to believe. That we are sharp people. That we are smart. That we got our act together. That we can put two and two together. That we can figure things out. We have good intuition. We, we we're sensible. We're wise. We got street cred, street wisdom, and street knowledge. And we, we can just figure these things out. That is not why God saves us. He saves us because of His grace. Spurgeon said, "It's all of grace. It's all of grace." Why is this important? Because there are many who wonder if God can possibly forgive their sins. You might be sitting here this morning wondering, can God really forgive that? And can God really forgive me? Well, no, apart from grace. But when grace enters the picture, then the answer is an eternal yes And no matter how dark and how deeply you feel this morning the sting of your sin as an unbeliever who is far, far from the holy God or even as a believer who is weighted down with a conscience because of something in your life. Regardless, we behold the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And because of that, the answer is yes. This grace, Paul says, is not... A mere potential. He states here in a way to show that this grace is actual for the believer. God has already poured it out and lavished it on his people. Now, at the beginning of verse 8, we finally got to another verse, which completes Paul's thought here in verse 7. He lavished on us, means he caused it to abound, he caused it to come out in abundance. Did he just kind of throw out grace? Again, actual actualities here. He lavished it on whom? On us. He designates the beneficiaries of his grace. When a rich man passes away, if he's wise, he's executed a will. And he doesn't say "disperse this to everyone in the world." He says, "Here's who it's for." send it and put it on my sons and my daughters my grandchildren my great grandchildren god as our heavenly father has lavished his grace on us he has given us he has designated these this is for my children i have given you grace Paul loves this. Romans 3:24 being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. Now he's showing grace. He removes sin. Do you need your sins removed? Far deeper than that, do you need your sin nature acquitted? God has done this for you, friends, in Christ Jesus, all who come to him in faith. That means to believe everything the Bible says about God is true. It it means to believe in simple faith and trust that Jesus really is the only hope of salvation. Jesus really is the only hope of anything in life, and eternal life, the life to come. I don't have time to unpack this for you, but nothing makes sense apart from Christ. Uh, There is is no meaning to life. There is no meaning to anything. Marriage, relationships, work, it all is bound together in Christ. Paul makes that point here in chapter 1 in just a few verses. He will continue to come back to that in every chapter. Let us move on here. We have two more brief points, briefer than the first. Number two, he replaces allegiances. When Christ dies, on, died on the cross, I want to correct an error I just made. He does not continually die on the cross. That is a former error of mine, being born in Catholicism. Okay? He doesn't continually die on the cross. He died once and for all, Hebrews tells us, on the cross But when he did that, and when he procured salvation for his people, and he actually saves them, not only does he do that, but he actually begins at that point of faith and salvation to replace their allegiances, their former allegiances, to even Satan himself, as we see in chapter 2. If you take your vehicle into the tire place for tires, they will often tell you after so much time, you not only need new tires, you also need… Realignment, you need balance and adjustments, need to be made, or you're, you're going to actually wear out certain aspects of what we're going to do. It's not really going to be understood or helped in the way that you think it will. We not only need the cross, we need all the alignments and adjustments that come with the cross. We need new allegiances the gospel is a light shining in darkness and it exposes in us and it does it progressively so we call that sanctification it does it progressively so through uh, by shining a light on our allegiances our affections our commitments that were previously out of alignment with the gospel of god's grace and as you grow in christ if you're a new believer and maybe some of you become a new believer today as you grow in christ the lord is going to continue to shape you and mold you as you dive into his word as you fellowship with god's people and And the light of God's truth is going to begin to shine in places in your life that you didn't see before. How does this happen? Look at the end of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, this is how he does this in all wisdom and insight. it could be looking back to what just happened or it could be looking forward. And I think it's looking forward here to God's wisdom. But either way, you can't go wrong. I think it's God's wisdom that he gives through the gospel that is in view here. So, so it goes with the following. This is how God establishes you. He establishes you, establishes you in wisdom and insight so that you will understand and appropriate his will in Christ Jesus. So what is meant by wisdom and insight? we are redeemed by Christ and sins are forgiven, there is a transformation that begins to take place at conversion because Jesus is true wisdom. Our eyes are open. He transforms us by allowing us to see the true nature of things. One is, he says right here, is through wisdom. We'll see in verse 9, if we get there, that this comes through understanding more and more God's plan that He has revealed. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge of God's revealed will. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge of God's revealed will. The other word he uses here at the end of verse 8 is insight. Like we said, this is a companion to the word wisdom. These two words go together wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight. It's not only understanding and knowing the truth of God's revealed will, it's also having the intentionality of applying that. That's insight. The best way to understand this word is to see it as the, the practical side of wisdom. So we, we translate this word sometimes as discretion, it's knowing how to apply wisdom. So when used together, wisdom is knowing God's will, and insight is knowing how to practice wisdom. As the light of the gospel shines more and more on various parts of our lives, God exposes the areas that are out of balance and out of alignment. And when he does this, what he makes known, verse 9, he makes known in this wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. The clock is fastly ticking here. Here's what you need to know. Circle the word mystery and then circle it every other time you find it in the book of Ephesians. And you're going to discover and see and behold a wonderful theme throughout this book. And mystery means what you might think it means. It means we didn't know this before. And now we know this. And how do we know this? Because all of these promises that were, in some cases, they were very concrete, but it wasn't known. How is this going to end it wasn't that it was obscure, is that the promises were made and all the evidence pointed in one direction, but now we see how it's fulfilled and how it's fulfilled is in Christ. He's made known to us, Paul says, to us, the apostles, the mystery of his will. And now we apostles, Paul says, are preaching this to you. It refers to something that was previously hidden but now revealed and it relates to God's redemptive plan including Gentiles and Jews together as the people of God and God has revealed his eternal secret counsel which was planned. He tells us here in the opening verses before the foundation of the world and that plan was to redeem a people for himself and Paul says in verse nine, this is why. It is the mystery of his will. Literally the mystery which is his will. It was always known in the Old Testament. It was always known in the Old Testament that God is a redeeming God. How do we know that? Because we can read the Old Testament. We can see God constantly saying, he's a redeeming God. With an outstretched hand, I redeem, his, I redeem my people, he says. He is a redeeming God. And the Old Testament also shows us that he requires sacrifice. So all of those things are there, but how would this be accomplished? That's the question. And the answer is Christ. He's the answer to the mystery. So the mystery of his will is focused here on salvation through Jesus, and it is a mystery because it cannot, it's not a mystery because it cannot be understood or apprehended through human wisdom. It's a mystery because it's only found in God in the revelation of Jesus Christ and all that, that means. Paul is saying here, Jesus is the basis and the goal of the unfolding mystery of his will. I have five pages of notes and we're gonna cover this in five minutes. You ready? No, we don't have to cover it all. Isn't this wonderful truth? Isn't this amazing to behold? Can we just stop here in the middle of the sermon and just shine a light on what we've learned so far and what we've been reminded of here by the Apostle Paul? Who cares if the preacher gets through everything? God is so wonderful to behold. Would you look down with me at at verse 10? Why has he done this? With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. It's it's hard to even say that because Paul is is, saying, here's the meaning of life. This is a meaning of life verse. You know, you got a lot of verses that play supporting roles in the sense that they fill in details and gaps. This is a meaning of the cosmos verse. This is here's what it's all about. God is in his plan summing up everything. Paul doesn't even have words for this. Summing up all things in Christ. Which things? Things in heaven and things on the earth. Does that leave anything out? What Paul is saying in verse ten is that Jesus' work for us has brought about to the has brought us to the vantage point of verse ten, so that we can see the bigger picture. It's like scaling a, a mountain peak. From this vantage point, from verse 10, we see everything else clearly. That Christ, that God the Father in Christ and in the power and energizing work of the Spirit, he is bringing together all things in Christ. That's the only way you're going to be able to make sense of everything that follows this. It's from this mountain peak here, this vantage point. Literally with a view to the fullness of the times. As we look out from this mountain of what God has done for us, In Christ, we see that God is bringing together his plan for the nations. He is pulling together everything that is fragmented, everything that is alienated from his will, and he is saving, he is refining, he is redeeming, he is pruning his people. And he's doing that to all of us, all the time, in every moment of every day. Later on in chapter two, Paul develops this idea, showing that Gentiles who were alienated and strangers to the covenants of promise of the promise of redemption have been united with believing Jews by the one death of Christ. In Christ, He's pulled together. Here's another way of saying it: He's pulled together all the loose ends. You ever read a mystery novel, and you think, "How in the world is this all going to come together?" You watch or you read Inspector Poirot, and you say, "How is this going to work?" And voila, it comes together. But this is not a, a, a ghost in the machine. This is not, a, this is not some God just j- dropping out of a closet at the end. This, we learn in the opening verses, this has always been his plan. This has been God's in kind intention toward us to bring together all the loose ends of our lives in Christ, of things in heaven and things on the earth. All things. Covers the totality, covers the individual parts. Well, what about this part of my life? Yes, even that too. In Christ, this is the, the location or the sphere in which God unites this cosmic redemptive plan. Here we have, P.T. O'Brien says, here we have is the, the focal point, not simply the means, the instrument, or the functionary through which all of this occurs. We have the main idea, the main point. So through the cross, our allegiances are reoriented and realigned through understanding our purposes in him. Here's what happens. The cross replaces your old allegiances. The cross replaces your old alliances. The cross replaces your old priorities. And that is a ongoing sanctifying work that God is doing in you that you are also responsible to, to heed and to obey It were the old theologians of the 70s, Steely Dan, who said, I'm never going back to my old school. This is the life of the believer. We're never going back. We're never going back to those old allegiances, those old alliances and priorities. Why is this so important? Because a lot of what we think is important really isn't when we see it from the mountain peak of verse 10. Number three, In 30 seconds or less. And this will be fun for you to continue to study. He redeems treasure. This is what the cross has accomplished. He redeems treasure. Verse 11, in him, at the very end of verse 10, we bring the in him over. In him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. I'm gonna open up a Pandora's box here, but I'll just leave it to you to study this on your own. He's not saying this. He's not saying, now we have this marvelous inheritance. There's a sense in which that is true. And you can read about that in Isaiah. And you can read about that in the book of Revelation that there is a future inheritance. There's even an inheritance that goes along with believing and knowing Christ now. But that's not the main focus of what he's saying here. Actually, what he's saying here is is that we are God's inheritance. It doesn't mean that we have an inheritance. It is God's inheritance. Uh, Paul roots this in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, it is Yahweh's portion. Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Paul is bringing that thought forward. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, the end goal. Here is a purpose statement in the the original. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Here's what it's all about. It is to magnify and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ with your life, with your words, with everything that you have. Why does this matter? You have a redemption that is secured by the blood of Christ. You have been freed from the bondage of sin. You have forgiveness of sins and relief from a burdened conscience in Christ. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 44 says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. If you have this forgiveness, Paul says in Romans 8, then you have no condemnation. It also means you no longer have to live for yourself but for Christ. You have the assurance that all things will be made right in Christ who is summing up all things and all points of history with perfect justice, with perfect acumen, with perfect wisdom and insight. You have the assurance that God is purposefully working all things after the counsel of his will. Listen to me, friends. This is the last thing I will say. He is working all things in your life for your good to the end praise of his glory. Everything, even the stuff that you don't like right now. The diagnosis, the miserable job, the difficult family member, the straying child, the wicked neighbor, is working all things. Until we realize our need for redemption, however, we see no need for a redeemer. Until, if you are an unbeliever, you recognize how hopelessly enslaved to sin you are, you will not seek release from it. But when you do, by faith you will be released from the curse of sin. Placed in the body of Christ and blessed with every spiritual blessing I know you know John Newton former slave owner we sing his hymns Amazing Grace at the end of his life he said I'm a very old man and my memory has gone but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and Jesus is what? a great savior you know it This is what we remember. To God be the praise and glory. Let us pray.